Okay, turn to uh, John 11 uh, this morning. Gospel of John chapter 11. Last week we uh, dove into the deep end of the pool and talked about the sovereignty of God. And uh, some of you came up to me after the service and said you were smelling chlorine. So, um, some good questions. Uh, there is a struggle for each of us in grasping the interplay between God being utterly and exhaustively sovereign and the decisions that we make on a daily basis, right? It's where the tension lies. Okay, where's the, is there still personal responsibility if God is so exhaustively sovereign? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. If you say to me, can you explain that fully? No. No, it's part of the uh, mystery of understanding who God is. I can tell you what I know. What I know is this. The sovereignty of God can be defined as something like this. God is able to do all that he plans and intends to do. Okay, the God we serve is able to do all that he plans or intends to do. God, it, it defines God's power to do what he decides to do without limitation. So that everything God wants to do, he is capable of and able to do. He never encounters a situation in which he is inadequate or inadequate to help or unable to help. Now, I wanted to push your buttons a little bit in terms of your thinking because I think we tend to resist this idea of the sovereignty of God and we think, well, if I read more verses, maybe I would get a little bit of a different understanding. Maybe I would get a view of it that I would be comfortable with. So I want to help you get a little more comfortable. Job 37, verses 6 to 13. I'm just going to read these to you, and then we're going to go into this text. He, God, says to the snow, fall on the earth. And to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that everyone he has made may know his work. He stops all people from their labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice. How many scraped your windshields this week? All right. Did you thank God for putting that there? I didn't think so. So I'm going to be late to work. <laughs> He's slowing you down. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. And aren't you glad after he loads the clouds with moisture that he brings it down in drops? If you've ever been hit by a water balloon, you know what I'm talking about. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water the earth and show his love. Psalm 104, 27. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take their breath away, they die and return to the dust. How sovereign is your God? How in control is your God? Is he the God described in these verses? Matthew 6, verse 26, Jesus Encouraging his people, he said, look at the birds of the air. Your father feeds them. Proverbs 16, the dice are cast into the lap, 
But the decision is wholly from the Lord. Entirely from the Lord. Anybody getting uncomfortable yet? Psalm 22, 28. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. So when we as Christians are panicked about current events, shame on us. Shame on us. He rules over the nations. Proverbs says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he directs it wherever he wishes. Psalm 139, 16. In your book were written every one of them, the days that, you, that were formed for me, when there was not yet one of them. Proverbs 20, verse 24. A man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9. A, man, a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Matthew 6, 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Galatians 1, 15, God set me apart before I was born and called me by His grace. And then Ephesians 1, 11, If we are also chosen, or in Him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of His will. According to the purposes of him who works out everything. According to the purposes of his will. He is the primary cause in such a way. The primary cause that is of all things. In such a way that our choices and decisions have real and eternal results. And for which we shall ultimately be held accountable. And folks I want to impress this on you. Because I think this truth will deliver you from so much trouble in your life. If you realize that you have a God who is utterly and exhaustively and capably in control of your life and of your circumstance, He is never taken by surprise. He is never caught short in terms of strength or energy. He is sovereign. And John 11 brings us into an account of Scripture that talks, I believe, fundamentally and primarily about the sovereignty of God. The story of the death of Lazarus. Verse 11 of John, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And the implication is what? When they had a problem, where did they want it to go? They want to get it to Jesus. Okay, and so in the same sense that you and I would go before the Lord and pray and take our burdens to Him, Mary and Martha know God is present. He's in the midst. And when trouble strikes that they can't handle, what do they do? They send a message to Jesus with a certain expectation. So let me just walk through this text as a case study on the sovereignty of God. I'm not going to read all the way through it. Initially, I'm going to read through it a piece at a time. I want you to think through your life. I want you to think about what it means to have a God who is exhaustively sovereign in your life. And I want you to learn from the text how it affects our response to difficulty and delay in our lives. I think I can safely assume that most of us here today, in some area, are wrestling with delay. Uh, God not answering, God not moving in an area that we wanted to move in because we think now is the time. 
Or I want you to think about a difficulty that God has allowed to come into your life that you are wrestling with, that you're puzzled over. You're asking God to take it away, and He is not taking it away. And you're wondering, what do I do, and why is this happening? The first three verses of this text describe to us a precious relationship between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They apparently are from the same family. They have a close relationship with Christ that has caused Mary to express towards Christ an amazing sense of love and passion. So these are his close friends. Here's the first truth. Difficulty is experienced by the objects of God's affection. What do we tend to think when trouble comes into someone's life? What do we tend to think? What do you think? When trouble comes into your life, what do you think? I'm being punished. He's like, okay, what did I do to deserve this? Meaning, I think I've been living pretty good. Did you mess up? Right? Or trouble comes into someone else's life. What are you thinking? Hmm. Right? All right, here's what I want just as an emphasis. In this text, difficulties introduced into the life of people that were Jesus' closest friends. Okay, which tells me a couple things. It tells me Jesus loved everybody. But he had a select group of people in his life that he was close with. That he loved in a way that was different than he loved other people. That he spent time with. They were his close friends. Believers, I think in principle here we learn, are not insulated from the difficulties of life. If you think as a believer that you will be insulated from the difficulties of life, when they come, you will find it devastating to your faith and trust in God. Because you will be accusatory towards God. Saying, I've been trying hard, I've been doing everything I should do, and this? And you will find yourself expressing at some level of resentment towards God. We need to remember that God allows difficulties to come into the life of His beloved children. We are not insulated from that. Verse 5, I think, helps to clarify this truth. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. In the original language, it's in this tense that talks about a habitual love. Not just he loved them at some point along the way, but he regularly expressed affection towards them. They were close. They had a unique relationship that I believe is different than the relationship of Jesus with the masses. It was close and it was personal. Difficulty has come into their lives. Secondly, verse 4, the response of Jesus to the fact that Lazarus is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, now this is sovereign God. This sickness will not end in death. And that should make you crinkle up your forehead, unless you take Botox or something like that. Okay, it's called, wait, no, whoa, oh no, I know this story. He's going to die. Jesus is wrong. Right? No, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. So that God's son may be glorified through it. Now think about that. God allows difficulty to come into the life of his children. In this case, The difficulty and the delay in response is intentional and purposeful. God has a plan. 
God is seeking to work out through your difficulties something glorious in your life. He wants you to learn something about himself. And so sometimes when you pray and you demand, he says, wait, wait. Intentional and purposeful for the glory of God. Verse 7. Well, let me, I'm sorry, let me pick up in verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He packed his bags and he ran to Bethany. Because he had to get there in a certain amount of time in order for things to work out properly. No, what did he have to do? He had to stay where he was for two more days. To do what? Well, to make the situation better. From a certain perspective. But also allow the situation to become what he intended for it to become. So that his purpose would be fulfilled. Verse 10. And let me just touch base on 8 and 9, because it's an aside in the text. Fascinating. But Rabbi, okay, uh, verse 7. After they stayed two more days, then he said to his disciples, okay, now let us go to Judea. Now, Judea is to the south. Jesus was presumably toward the north, a two-day journey. So he comes now from the north down into the area of Judea, where he has, if you go back in the Gospel of John, encountered very strong pressure against his ministry to the point that they wanted to take him and kill him. So his disciples, when he says, let's go to Judea, what does they say? But Rabbi, they said, it is a a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and you were going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And I think the the, the basic picture there is, when you are walking in the light of God's way, he will protect you from stumbling. Not necessarily from difficulty. But walk in the light that God has given you. And that is what Jesus is doing. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I am going to wake him up. I love that. Our friend Lazarus. He's fallen asleep, which was a euphemism for death. And in saying, I am going to wake him up, what is he doing with death? He's redefining it. I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Why? Because if he's asleep physically, kind of in a comatose state, You can bring him back. And the next verse is the stunning verse of the text. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. And you have to think through the pronouns. You have to think through the verbs of this verse. Lazarus, our friend, is dead. That euphemism, asleep, is true. He is dead. But let us go to him. Now, how many of you have ever gone to a funeral home for a wake, talking in that kind of a way? You can just think it through. But we are going to him. He is dead. 
but we are going to him. What's the truth that emerges? I think the truth that emerges is that this delay on the part of Christ is intentional and purposeful. There is something he is going to do through this circumstance that is going to amaze his people. The difficulty is necessary. The delay is intentional and purposeful. Verse 16. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, what do they mean? Are they going to die with Lazarus? What do you think? You got two options here. What do you think? Don't speak up. Okay, Jesus is going to Judea. They know that the plan was to put him to death. He's going back. What do they say? Oh, no. Jesus says, oh, yeah. And Thomas, what does he say? You always think it's Peter, right? Thomas is like, let us go and die with him. Let us go face trouble with him. What does it appear that Thomas has totally forgotten? That we're going to Judea to take care of Lazarus. (laughs) And so, an intentional, purposeful delay, Jesus is kind of drawing in their attention. Verse 21. Or verse 17, I'm sorry. On his arrival, Jesus, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And this is why the disciples were troubled. We don't mind going south. We mind going to Jerusalem. Okay, why? That's the hot spot. That's where the religious leadership is plotting his assassination. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in, in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the home. So the picture is this. Jesus comes into the environment of his needy followers, the ones he loves. When Martha hears that Jesus is in on the grounds, he's around, what does she do? She leaves everything and runs out to Jesus. Why? Because she has a burden. She has a problem that she wants to bring to Jesus. And you you just have to just just think through this incredible set of circumstances. As she comes to Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which is to say what? I believe that if you had been here, he would have stayed alive. Which implies what? You're late. You're late. You're incredibly capable, but you're late. And then listen to the next verse. I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus says to her, oh, your brother will rise again. And what's Martha's reply? Oh, I know, I know. We're good. Right? I know he'll rise again. And and in the last day, at the resurrection, I know Jesus. That's my hope right now. And Jesus says to her something Stunning, because this is the greater revelation of truth that Jesus is revealing through the difficulty, truth they would never see in normal circumstances. So the delay has an intention, it has a purpose, and the delay brings them into circumstances that they would never choose. 
Because when Lazarus got sick, what did he do? Get Jesus. If he gets here in time, Lazarus will stay alive. That's the presumption on everybody's part. But Jesus waits so that Lazarus dies, so that he can make a statement about himself that they could not comprehend apart from this particular set of circumstances. Difficult delay. I am the resurrection, Mary or Martha, and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe it? The other individual that's mentioned in the story emerges. Well, listen to Martha's response first. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who was to come into the world. You are the long-anticipated Messiah of the nation of Israel. She knew him, but she didn't totally know him yet. And Jesus now allows her to go into circumstance in relationship with him so that she will learn something she couldn't learn in normal circumstances. Folks, this is the part we got to get. God will let you go into circumstances that you can't handle, so you have to trust him. And when it's done, you will thank him for that gauntlet that he allowed you to pass through because you will know him in a way that you couldn't know him if he protected you. Every good coach, every good military commander knows that soldiers, that followers, that warrior-type athletes are forged in the furnace of affliction. And as a wise master, God is working all things together to make us what he wants us to be and to show us himself in a way that will cause us to say, God, thank you for allowing me to go through that so that I could become something that I never could have been in my own strength. And we need to get this broader perspective. Verse 28. After she had said this, Martha, she went back to the house and she called her sister Mary aside. Mary, the teacher is here. He is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Why? Because she had hope in Christ. And when he was there, what did she do? When she, he's, he's asking for you. The creator of the universe wants an audience with you, Mary. She got up quickly. She went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met them, which is presumably just outside of this small village of Bethany. Verse 31. Jews who were in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she had gotten up and went out. Okay, this is interesting. Martha comes in, she pulls Mary aside and says, Mary, he's asking for you. She leaves with such haste that she captures the attention of watchers. Now, here's a question for you. Have you ever run to Jesus in a way with such need that you captured the attention of people around you? And they also went to Jesus. That's how much Mary loved Christ. There was no shame. There was no hiding her love for Jesus. 
She went in such a way that all the Jews that had come to mourn with her, and they would pay mourners. They would, they would mourn loudly, and the more loudly the mourning was, the more respect you had for the dead person. And Jesus was, quite frankly, disgusted by it. Because he knew how inappropriate it was in light of who he was. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, what happened to her? She collapsed at his feet. Why? Jesus, in his sovereignty, had delayed coming so that she would experience a life-shaking crisis. So that when she got to Jesus, she couldn't even stand up. He allowed her to be in difficulty through delay so that she could learn something she couldn't learn in other circumstances. <clears throat> she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I understand. Right, and you, get, you, start, you start to pick up a pattern in this text. Martha's like, Lord, good to see you. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary comes out, what does she say? Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But we understand. You're busy. Verse 37. I just want to jump down to this. The ones that had run out behind Mary and found that she was not going to the tomb but to Jesus, they started to reflect on Jesus and what he's done. What do they say? Verse 37. Some of them said, Could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man, John chapter 9, who was blind from birth, could not he have kept this man from dying? So all of them are living with an assumption. What is the assumption? God is powerful in the person of Christ. But he's not that powerful. Do you see? Oh, he's good. He, he did many, they had seen the miracles. But this one, we understand you're late. That, that's okay. It's the tone that kind of hangs over this text. Now, what I want you to notice is what happens in verses 33 to 36. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. And the next word is, he was troubled, which is to say, it made him mad. It angered him. It agitated him. What? The pain that death brings through sin. It, it, it caused him, some of the original language words, it kind of takes on that, it caused him to bristle. It made him mad. He saw something that agitated, that irritated, that needed to be resolved. That needed to be the way things should be. As opposed to the way things were in their lives. He was deeply moved in spirit. And what did he say? Where have you laid him? Come and see. The Lord. Come and see, Lord. They replied, Verse 35 is the verse I want you to focus on for a moment. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He shed tears over this circumstance. And the Jews saw the love of Christ for Mary and Martha and Lazarus was so strong that they, 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 these words flowed out of them, an assessment of the immediate circumstance. What did they? Look how much he loved him. And they're amazed by this, this, this teacher, this powerful man in word and deed is now weeping. Folks, I want to tell you something. For many people, 
This is the God they serve. A God who comes near in the midst of difficult circumstances and weeps with them. He's kind of like the hallmark God. He, he comes and he, he's, he's kind of the one that appeals to your affections. And he kind of soothes you and comforts you. He's not fierce and powerful. He's just there. But he's unable to change things. That's the God many of us live with. Well, if you'd been here, we, we understand. Thanks for coming, crying. It helped. I've had people say that to me personally as a pastor. I go to the hospital for a visit or go visit someone after a family member has died. And you know what they say to me? Thanks for coming. That meant a lot. I know exactly what they mean. In the context of relationships, that's powerful. But that is not Jesus. If you come out of John 11 saying, you know what? I, Jesus wept. That's powerful. That's not... A, it's not the purpose of the event to show you that God is emotionally involved in your story. He feels what you feel, but he can't do anything about it. It's not the God that is being revealed in John chapter 11. Would you follow along? Come and see, they replied, verse 35, Jesus wept. See how he loved in the response of the Jews. But some of them said, could that this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Jesus once more, deeply moved, groaning. This is the, the deepest depth of emotion and the deepest depths of the heart. He came to the tomb. It was a cave. And here's just the historical narrative. It was a cave, had a stone laid across the entrance. And what does Jesus say? And now remember, all three witnesses have said what? If you had been here, you know, everything would be fine, but that's okay. What does Jesus say? Jesus says what sounds utterly ridiculous. Take away the stone. Now, what had Mary just said earlier? Oh, Lord, I believe. Oh, yeah, and one day, one day you're going to do that stuff. I believe that. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha's reply, but Lord, the sister of the dead man said. And I don't know if she says this out loud or she pulls him aside so that he is clear. By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Which means what, folks? That sometimes in our lives and in our circumstances, we are not seeing the glory of God because we don't believe. Faith unlocks the key to the storehouse of God's power and wealth. And what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is, in a sense, forgiving the lack of faith. What's he say? Take away the stone. Well, he stinks. Take away the stone. And I love the persistence of Christ. And here is this seemingly ridiculous directive. If Jesus cannot do anything about Lazarus's deadness, then this directive is ridiculous. It would be foolish to go and to view a body that is undergoing decay. Verse 41. And so they took away the stone, and I 
There are certain portions of Scripture that I would like to have a video of. This is one. I would love to see how this stone was removed. I would love to see the attitude of the people moving it. Looking at each other like... (laughs) Right? Like, was he serious? Backs to him, knowing everything they're saying. Are we going to do this? Like, really? This is stupid. This is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. They moved the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Wow. What is Jesus doing? He's discipling his people in trouble and difficulty and in delay. He is opening up for them a way that they can see him in a way that they never could apart from the circumstances that they would never choose. So what does God do? God allows you to get into circumstances that you would never choose so that you can learn truth that you could never understand otherwise. That's what he's always doing. Why? Go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 4, so that you would see the glory of God, so that you would be overwhelmed with the weightiness of who the God is that you serve. That you would be stunned and driven to deeper faith. I said this for their benefit so that they may believe that you sent me. What's the purpose of this event? It is to do what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's job, John 14 through 16, is to what? Make much of Jesus. God is orchestrating events to do what? To make much of Jesus. That's what this is all about. When Jesus had said this, he called out in a loud voice. And I just, what was this like? Lazarus, we're going to go and be with him, disciples. He's dead. Yeah, we're going to go and be with him. Like assumes what? We're going to talk to him, eat with him, spend time with him. But he's dead. And if you had been here, he might be alive, but he's dead. And Jesus gives a name and a command. What I want you to notice is the command is given to a man who can't respond. Because that's the way the call of God always is. The call of God always goes to dead people. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And if your heart is alive to the good news of Christ, it's because God did a miracle called regeneration that brought you to faith and repentance to trust in Christ. And here Jesus gives a command. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And what happens? The people run to the body. They start unwrapping it. No. It's not what happens. What are they doing? They're probably going the other direction. Okay, think about this. This can't happen. If you had been here, yes. But this can't happen. This is too difficult, and the delay caused a dilemma that is irreversible. Ever felt like that in your life? And sometimes Jesus has to literally bring someone from the dead to get your attention. And then he has to say to the lookers, go help the man out. He's having a struggle. And they're thinking, what? I'm not going over there. (laughs) 
I mean, apart from a directive of God to go unwrap the man. I doubt that they would have approached the body. The voice of Christ in this text is so powerful that a dead body is compelled to respond. The painful delay in this story was intended to reveal truth about God that they could never throw no through circumstances that they would never choose. That's the sovereignty of God. And the purpose for this entire story is to what? So that the disciples would gain a clear understanding of who Jesus is. So you go back to, to, to chapter 11 and verse 4. This his sickness will not end in death. No, this is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So that you may see Jesus in a way that you have never seen Him before. And so that He might redefine your circumstances. So that you're not always saying, if, then. God never functions on an if-then basis. God does what he intends to do. God has the power to do what he intends to do. So Jesus could in this text do what? Talk about a difficult circumstances in spite of the delay that brings his disciples and his followers, people that he loves, to a place they could never come to apart from this set of circumstances. Now, I have an assumption. I have an assumption that the disciples who were probably horrified when he asked that the stone be removed, who were probably saying to each other, what is he thinking? He's going to look bad. Right? Why? Because it's not a savable situation. And they're probably kind of backpedaling and saying, yeah, you know, we're with him. But we got questions. You know, we're not fully committed. And I imagine after this circumstances, the disciples leaving this scene, and what are they saying? We're with him. We're with him. Why? Because he had revealed his glory. The weight of who he is in the context of suffering in the life of his children. Suffering that we would never choose so that we could learn truth that we could never know. Apart from the circumstance. Folks, why does God work in these ways? And why, why does he record this story in this book? Can I answer that question from John chapter 20 verse 30? Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, reader, you, hearer, might have life in His name. You know what regeneration is? Regeneration, being born from above, is God taking a dead man or a dead woman and making them alive spiritually. That's what new birth is. And it's what God aims to do. These, this account is written so that your faith in Christ might grow and be strengthened. So that whoever believes in Him, as Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, will never die. So these three statements in application. Number one, our surrender, obedience, our actions are consequential. Mary and Martha going to Christ. Lazarus responding to the call of Christ. Them rolling away the stone led to a glorious miracle. Our actions are part of God's plan. Part of His sovereign outworking. 
So the question for you this morning may be this. What is the stone that God wants you to move so that you can see his glory revealed in your life? What is the circumstance that you would rather avoid that God has put you in where he wants you to obey him so that you can learn something you could never learn apart from that circumstance? I thought quickly this morning of the story of Mary in the Christmas account. God comes to her with an impossible circumstance. Mary, you're going to have a child. Mary's response, I don't think so. God talks to her and what's her response? Being unto me according to your will. This will make me look bad. This will make me look like a fornicator, like an adulterer in my culture. That will be devastating. But be it unto me according to your will. God took Mary into a circumstance that she would never choose so that sitting beside a manger, she could learn a truth that she could never know apart from those circumstances. What stone does God want to move in your life? What step of bold obedience is God calling you to that you think is going to make you look bad if you listen? But it's clear it's what he wants you to do. What is it? What conflict does God want you to resolve? What work situation does he want you to address? He's saying, do you move away the stone and let me move? Folks, a lot of times we're the stone. We are obstructing the purposes of God. He wants you out of the way. And when you step out of the way, you will see God in a way that you could never see him otherwise. Let him work. And the last thought I give you is this. We should trust a sovereign God in all things. When Jesus said to Mary, Martha, and her friends, and the disciples, move the stone. You know what he's asking them to do? He was saying, do you trust me? You said you knew I could raise the dead. Do you really believe that? You said I could handle the circumstances in your life. Do you really believe that? Will you step out on a limb and roll away the stone and let the grave sit empty or open, I'm sorry, so that one day it may be empty? What is the step that God wants you to take so that you can see the glory of God? Because, folks, here's the bottom line. In the account of Lazarus, no one went away that day saying, you know what, I'm pretty amazing. Look what I did. Right? No one. This difficulty, this circumstance that God has sovereignly brought into your life is for the glory of him and his son through the spirit. So what is it that I'm resisting? What is it that you're resisting? And God's saying, take a step of obedient faith, of durable, obedient faith. Take away the stone. And trust me with the outcome. What's the circumstance in your life that God wants to change? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor Tim? I don't know that I've ever experienced that power. Well, I want you to know there's someone who can awaken your dead heart. This is written so you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who the Father sent to change your life. If you've been trying on your own, here's what you've experienced. Failure after failure after failure after failure. And you haven't changed. Only God can change you. Only God could bring Lazarus out of that grave. But what did they have to do? They had to take the step of faith. Our actions are consequential in the, consequential in the sovereign plan of God. And he is able to do abundantly more than you would ever ask or think if you are willing to roll the stone away.
Father, help us.